Glad you guys could be with us this morning. But um, Raymond and Braden and Ricky, just we're doing what a lot of us in this family are trying to do, and that's take something that's difficult and, and turn it into something that's divine. I hope you're doing well, uh, because this has been a challenging time for our country, nationally, and also for many of us personally. As you know by now, the elders have decided to follow the president's mandates for social distancing, and that means no gatherings at the building, uh, and that probably is going to take place all the way through the month of April. So for the next 30 days, minimally, we're going to be worshiping as one congregation in many different places. And that makes a lot of us sad, myself included. And to help with that, I thought I'd share with you a few humorous things that made me chuckle in connection to the coronavirus. I was driving through San Angelo on my way home from Lubbock uh, in the birth of our uh, second grandbaby. And I got a chance to hear one of the Christian radio stations there uh, share two of these things that I just thought were funny. One involved a nine-year-old boy who was asked by his mom, do you know why school's been closed? And he said, well, sure. They ran out of toilet paper. The second one was about a man in his 40s. And he said, I have washed my hands so much, I have uncovered the answers to a sixth grade chemistry test. I love that. And then number three, was this picture that James Penland sent me. If you've ever wondered how you baptize people during the social distancing guidelines that are in place, uh, here's one clever idea. Times are serious, uh, but I think they call for a little bit of laughter every now and then. And I think they call for an answer to a pretty big question. What is God saying to us? Well, my heart connected with what Max Licato shared with his church on March 15th, and I want to share that with you. He said, I believe that God's talking to the world. And I also believe that he's testing his church. He's talking to the world saying, come to me and depend on me. Your life on earth is fragile and it's brief. And I just want to remind you that you're not alone. That I want to be the source and comfort for your fulfillment and meaning in life. And all those times that we thought that we could trust the economy, and all those times that we thought that real fulfillment would come with the right cruise, the right trip, or the right job. God's trying to remind us that he's the source of life. He's talking to us. And Max goes on to say he's testing the church. He's testing us to see if we'll be the people that he's called us to be. Will we be the people of faith? Will we be the people of generosity that he's taught us to be? This is a unique window. And he's testing us to see if we'll lean on him, trust in him. All these words we've been saying all of our lives, will we actually believe that he's in total control? Will we believe that God's not just sometimes sovereign, but that he's all the time sovereign? Max says this is a test of faith. He says it's also a test of our generosity. While everyone else isolates and hoards and gets defensive and protective, will we be the people who reach out and share? When the world is under stress, many people go underground. It's time for us, he says, to go out to be the voice of encouragement to the elderly, to be the hands of Jesus, ready to help those who are homeless and even penniless, how will we respond to the test? Well, here's my answer. I believe we're gonna to rise to the occasion, I really do. I believe that we're gonna respond well despite the challenges to us personally and to us nationally. That in the midst of the unknown, we're gonna lean into the God that we do know and the Savior that we know and the Spirit that we know to help us be who he's called us to be. Now, what's been personally challenging for the sportsmen has been Tabitha having our second grain baby, her first baby during this crisis, 
trying not to become infected with COVID-19 before I headed up to Lubbock for the baby's sake, for uh, Tabitha's sake, for her husband Travis's sake, who is an RN on the front lines of taking care of people right there in Lubbock. And I just want to say thank you. So many of you have prayed for little Abby Michelle, who was hovering near the 15th percentile in baby's weight. That is until after you were asked to pray. And I'm thrilled to tell you that Abby put on two and a half pounds in the last four weeks of Tabitha's pregnancy. That's unheard of in such a short period of time. We were praying that she would be at least six pounds when she came into this world. Well, she was seven. Nice biblical number. And yay God. Just yay God. Travis and Tabitha wanted me to say that when I could tell you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all your prayers. And Gil and I share the same thing. But it's been challenging. But I want to remind you the church was birthed in the midst of challenging circumstances and will remain in them till the Lord's return. And don't forget, Jesus was born into a world that was brutal and harsh and dangerous. The Roman military, we're told by historians, was intimidating and demanding to say the least. They made ISIS seem like the Boy Scouts. So please remember, when God came in the flesh, he came to earth in difficult times. He chose to meet that difficulty head on, not with power and might over others, but with care and concern for others. Jesus came, the gospel writers show us, and engaged poverty and abuse of power and deceit and greed, not for personal gain, not for power of his own, but for the simple blessing of a human being's life. I want to call that uncommon compassion. And it was his weapon of choice. The New Testament uses a very fascinating Greek word to describe compassion. It's the word splenizomai. Kind of a fun word to say. As a matter of fact, I want to invite you to do that, to say it with me. Splenizomai. What it means is to feel pain literally in your gut. And you've experienced that. When someone's struggling or someone's hurting and you're hurting for them, you feel it right here to the point it's almost painful sometimes. I witnessed this at the funeral for Dorothy Mangrum. <laughs> It was an interesting dynamic that was taking place with all this COVID-19 in the air. The last amen was said by James Houston as he led us in the closing prayer. And so the graveside service was completed. Folks didn't have a clue what to do with themselves. Our hearts wanted to reach out to the family, but with the social distancing thing and the threat of the virus in the air, it made us cautious, cautious and, and rightfully so. Uh, we needed to keep our distance. I'm a hugger by nature. And so that was tough for me. And it was killing me not to get close to the people that I love and wanted to reach out to and, and just say, I, I hate that you're going through this. And I noticed it was for others as well. <laughs> they'd walk up and they'd kind of extend their arms and they'd pat the family on the back, except for a couple of sisters. <laughs> I'm telling you, they just dove in and they were in people's faces and were hugging. I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, they were arrested by the touching police. And um, we're trying to visit them as much as we can because that's what the Bible says we should do. It was hard. It was hard not to reach out because when we see someone hurting, there's a part of us that can't allow that to happen alone. Something from within us cries out to help and we can carry their burdens when we explain needs so mine, when we hurt with them. It's one of the reasons why I miss Carol Gafford. When I first met Carol, we reminisced about our time that both of us spent at University Avenue Church in Austin. She was the first educational minister that I had ever heard of that was a woman. Well, she went on to hold that position in two other churches after her time in Austin. 
But she also instituted, she also edited the Institute for Christian Studies journal. The lady's brilliant, but that didn't negate her need to be hugged. I'll never forget one Sunday that I greeted her with a hug, and she said, man, I sure like your hugs. And I said, well, I sure like giving them. She said, well, can I tell you that they're more of a necessity than you might know? As an older person, whether it be because of divorce or, or as a widow, um, when you're not touched, either verbally or physically, it, it just makes you feel like a nobody. That hurt my heart. And it helped me understand why, why we need to be together and why it's so hard for us, even though that some of these things, the, the singing and the communion thoughts, and even that the messages might be done well, we can't do touching well without being together. And that's part of the way God designed us. Well, this morning in Mark chapter 10, we're going to meet a somebody who had been made to feel like a nobody. And his name is Bartimaeus. His name means sons of honor or son of honor. In verse 46, we're going to pick up Mark's version of this eyewitness account. And here's how it goes. Then they reached Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. Now let me hit pause here for just a moment. Because this is a reoccurring phrase that happens in all four of the Gospels. And that is that Jesus drew a crowd everywhere he went. There was something about him that just made people want to be in his presence. And I believe with all my heart that that's true today. That when he's present in someone's heart, other people want to be with him too. Let's go on. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who was the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I'll oh, be quiet, some of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, when Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. And so they called the blind man and said, cheer up. Come on, he's calling you. And Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumps up and headed towards Christ. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. And he said, my rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said to the man, go, for your faith has healed you. And instantly, the man could see. Let's stop there and pray. Hmm, Father, I ask for your blessing upon this message today. It does. It feels like a sack lunch uh, that desperately needs your spirit to touch and for you to help break it, to deliver it so that it really can be a message of hope and inspiration to the people, uh, especially at this time, need to hear it. Father, I, I realize that... Uh, we're not the only ones who hope that you give us eyes to see people who are in need and give us the compassionate hearts to be able to reach out to them. First Baptist Church is desiring that too. So would you anoint them with your spirit and however they're getting their message out and, and, they're, and they're experiencing worship today, would you just bless that time for whoever tunes in? Um, we so want to be a, a family of Christ that blesses this community in a way that they realize that your son came and that he matters. We ask us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, I hope. Well, this story, like so many of the stories in the Gospels, is filled with texture and meaning. But I want to extract just two questions from the text today. Two questions that I think Bartimaeus is asking, but also that thousands here, right here in Kerrville, are asking. Question number one, can you see me? And question number two, can you help me? Interesting that sociologists and psychologists agree 
that one of the worst things that can happen to any of us is to be isolated. A Stanford researcher made this observation. I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. That's Bartimaeus. He is shouting, can anybody see me? Is there anybody out there who cares enough to want to help me? And church, I'm just wondering, have you heard similar voices around you? Jesus says, I do see you. Jesus says, I do want to help you. What do you say? Now, I wish we could all be together uh, for what I want to do next. And it's going to be a little bit weird, possibly me leading us through this, but let's try it anyways. I really would like to ask you to, to raise your hand or, or, or do something, all right? Nudge somebody next to you and say, me too, um, if this connects with you. But I think all of us have experienced um, those moments when we explain nisomide, another person, when we felt compassion because they've been going through a divorce, because they've been, experienced a bankruptcy or cancer or a miscarriage. Uh, they've experienced the, uh, just the, the ugliness that comes from being gossiped about experienced someone in their life who had an affair or infertility or depression or suicide or addiction or prison, injury, illness, death, all of those just can destroy us. And uh, if you've ever experienced one of those or if you've known someone who has, I'm just going to ask you to just raise your hand or say me too. I think if we were all together this morning, we'd just see a sea of hands and it would be really the exception of those who, who couldn't raise their hand. It is just difficult when we go through things that we have to go through that, like what we've seen on the screen here and we have to go through them alone. And I hope that never happens. And I think if you're a part of the body of Christ, I can almost assure you that won't happen. If it does, uh, man, talk to an elder, talk to me, talk to someone because we want that to be just a, a bedrock principle for our church. No one here suffers alone. Now, I think what that also says is we're all hurting. And it also says we all need healing. If you're human, I promise you, you're hurting. Jesus said those words. In John 16, verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. But I want to be honest, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, if you're listening to this message right now, you're hurting in various degrees. But every single one of us is hurting and at the same time is getting help because of what we're doing today. We're doing our best to fix our eyes on Christ through uh, communion together, through the songs that we've lifted up to God, through this message. And because of that, Scripture says, as we behold God, when we are intentional and purposeful about that, we change. Listen to God's word on that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces, when we're transparent and we're honest, beholding the Lord, are being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. Now, that's God's promise to you through Paul. If you've got a piece of paper, and I'm not actually going to ask you to write this down, but if you had a piece of paper, do you think that you possibly could put on it five people right now who are not worshiping today or any other day? That means they're not healing because they're not a part of a loving community where God's promised to do his, his best loving work in the world in a very special way. They're hurting, like millions of other Americans. And you've heard them 
They're saying things like, I'm struggling and I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. And I certainly don't know how to find help for it. They're looking for something that's going to help. And if they don't find it, I can promise you, I know what they'll do. One of three things. They're going to numb it. They're going to hide it. Or they're going to take it out on someone else. We've got a better option. We have a healing option, a genuinely, realistically available option. And God wants to extend that option through you. The last time that I saw Nora, our first grandbaby, <laughs> she reached up and she grabbed my beard and would not let go. I was thinking immediately, we've got another WWE wrestler in our family. And man, did it hurt. And it made me think of a story this week of little boys. A young mom had her four-year-old and her two-year-old sitting on the couch eating some goldfish crackers and they were watching Frozen 2. It was peaceful in the house for at least 10 minutes. And so she went into the laundry room to fold some clothes. Well, she heard screaming. It took her out of the laundry room and back into the living room and she found her two-year-old standing on the couch and, and he was pulling on his four-year-old brother's hair. Now she gets the two-year-old off the four-year-old and explains, you can't do that. And to her crying four-year-old, she tries to explain, he doesn't understand, he's just two. He doesn't know how it feels. Now she got them all settled again, got their bowls of goldfish back in their laps, frozen two back on, and she goes back to the laundry room and she hears screaming again. And after just a couple of minutes, she goes back in. And this time, the four-year-old is pulling the two-year-old's hair. And he says, now he knows how it feels, Mama. I love this statement from Jesus. It is so challenging, even to those of us who call Christ our Lord, because it's just hard to do at times with certain people. In everything, Jesus says, you do for others what you would have them do for you. And we've heard that. Do for others what we wish for them to do for us. But I want you to notice this morning the genius of Jesus in challenging us to act towards people in this specific way. He could have framed it in the negative. He could have said, don't do to anyone what you don't want done to you. Now that's damage control thinking. No, he frames it in the positive, in a constructive way, when he says, I want you to do for others what you hoped they would do for you. He's not allowing us to, to be inactive in people's life. He's calling us to action. He doesn't want us to refrain from something that, that might hurt someone or, or, or be negative in their lives. He's calling us to be participatory. He's calling us to be active. He's calling us to add value to others, not just make sure that we don't take it from them. And you know what, church? We can do that. We can do that because we know what it feels like to be encouraged. We can do that because we, we know what it's like to be or have someone be patient with us and to be kind to us. God's done that for every single one of us who wear the name of Christ. Jesus, however, was the best at this. Every person he met, he seemed to put himself in their shoes and ask this all-important question. If I was this person, what would I want someone to do for me? That's the question that Uncommon Compassion asks. You see someone in a wheelchair and you say, you know, never been in a wheelchair. Don't know if I'll ever be in a wheelchair, but if I was, here's what I'd like for someone to do for me. I've never had cancer. Uh, but if I did have cancer, here's what I'd like for someone to do for me. And I do that for someone who does. I wasn't born in a country that struggles to provide water for its people or food for its people, but I could have been. And if I was, I'd want someone to do this for me. And so I do that for some folks who are struggling with getting food and necessary water in their life. That is how compassionate people approach others especially those with an obvious need. Now, if that was me, 
what would I want someone to do for me in that situation? Interesting fact. In Chicago not too long ago, 30 adults got into a brawl while claiming their prize, of all places, at Chuck E. Cheese. Now, if you've ever been to a Chuck E. Cheese on a weekend, you possibly understand. But knowing the golden rule and actually applying the golden rule are two different things. Now, compare that with what happened in San Antonio, Texas at a Chick-fil-A. One guy in the drive-thru decides he's going to pay for the car's dinner behind him. And so he pulls out, and the next guy pulls up, and the teenager says, the car in front of you just paid for your dinner. And they go, wow, that's great. Let me do the same for the next guy who's behind me. And so he does. 228 consecutive cars later, every one of them paying for the person who was behind him. Now, when they got to car number 229, the guy probably needed to drive to Chicago and hang out with those at Chuck E. Cheese. Knowing the golden rule and applying the golden rule are two very different things. But Christians were born different, weren't we? We were born again different. Not better, but different. Because God has been so, so, so good to us. And that enables us to be good to others. You've seen this generosity. You've seen this kindness, breed more kindness and generosity in others. So God gets a little miffed when he doesn't see it coming out of Christians that he's poured it into, into others. Let me show you what God says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and God's forbearance and God's patience, not realizing his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to lead you to radical life change? Now, some of you grew up in a church and you were told, the father wasn't kind, and he wasn't forbearing, that he wasn't patient. Uh, you learned that he was angry with you, that God was disappointed with you, that God was exasperated with you, done with you. Well, he's not. He is loving. He is good, and he is kind. I love the song right now that's popular uh, on the radio, Christian radio stations, Holy Water by We the Kingdom. Um, it's the number one song, I think, in the country. I may be wrong on that, but, man, it's, it's number one in my life. The bridge in the middle of the song says this. I don't want to abuse your grace, but Lord, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. Great, great line. Because I've learned, and you have too, threats rarely lead to consistent life change. Grace, however, has been proven to do so for almost 2,000 years. And doesn't it make sense, church? That if we're compassionate to others, our mates, our parents, and coaches, and, our, and policemen in our community, that that, that compassion is going to rub off at least in some way in their lives. It is God's method of choice for real life change. The cross is forever our example for that. But God doesn't just do this for us once at the cross. He does it over and over again every single day. His mercies are new every morning, the scripture says. And that's purposeful intention. He doesn't do that by accident which rarely happens. I found out when we're busy. I don't know how you've experienced this during this time when we've had a little bit more time on our hands and, and not been in the push and shove of everyday schedules, but I'm learning that busyness kills compassion because I think I've experienced a little bit more compassion since I've had more downtime. Bartimaeus is shouting for help and the crowd say, ah, oh, be quiet. Jesus is too busy to be bothered with you. Not. Jesus is never too busy, in part because he has all the time in the world, but mostly because love just resonates in his heart. It's who he is, and because people were a priority. 
people like you and me. We've got two college students in our KCC family who I think are examples of God's priority for people. Uh, that are priority for God's, uh, that are examples of God's priority for uncommon compassion being in our lives. Jonathan Kemp, who is a college student at the Riverside Church of Christ here in Kerrville, uh, is a good friend to both Hannah and Garrett Schrader. Jonathan asked uh, both of them if he would mind putting, the, if, they could, if he could put their names along with his in an ad to help anybody in our community who needed help. Well, Bill Cooper took them up on their offer. He needed to finish his move to Dallas last week when uh, the COVID-19 pandemic was just kind of peaking, uh, and it put a kink in his plans to move. Now, it would when you're in your 90s and social distancing is in place. He couldn't move the last of his furniture because of his health, and he couldn't certainly make the drive to Dallas by himself. He needed help, and he needed to be there in two days, and so there was a little bit of a time element involved in this. Well, the three college students helped move some heavy furniture that he had sold, and then they loaded up a rented Shelby Silverado with some of his belongings to drive Bill to his new home in Dallas. Garrett drove Bill and his little Chihuahua sushi, and Hannah drove the Chevy pickup. And Mama uh, was worried, a little concerned, to say the least like a cat in a room full of rocking chairs worried. But God, God was faithful and the twins made it there and back safe. And uncommon compassion won out over COVID-19. Yea, God. Was there an element of danger to that? Absolutely. But I'm gonna say this morning, Jesus loving people have rarely ever been safe when they're also Jesus following people. Following in the footsteps of Christ is often marked with some kind of danger attached to it. It was for Jesus, and I can assure you, it will be for you. And so I want to leave you with the question that Jesus asked Bartimaeus. I think it's a pivotal part of this particular story of Christ. And the question is this. What can I do for you? I think all too often we assume that we know what another person needs. So let me remind us that love never assumes. Love always asks. And your homework for this week is simply this, to ask that question of one other person. You get to pick the person, but when you ask them and they tell you what they need, please do what you can to meet that need. If they need you to listen, listen. If they need you to go and run an errand, go run that errand as prayerfully and as wisely and as effectively as you possibly can. Would you please do for one what you would hope for everyone? Just one. I'm going to close with this story. A guy was riding his bicycle in the rain here a couple of days ago. And I'm telling you, it was raining buckets for the moment. And I pulled over and I said, throw your bike in the back and I'll take you wherever you need to go. I'm telling you, it was the kind of rain that someone would pay for you to get them out of. And he said, no, no, I'm good. And I could see the leeriness in his eyes. Just was suspect that this was a good thing. And I think that just goes to show you that everybody's hurting. Everybody is suspicious. Everybody is cynical on some level. And I think especially during times like this. Because you see, too many people have been wounded more than they've been helped. And that's why I believe that the church exists right now, this time, this place, to love people in the hill country in a way that maybe they've never been loved. We have something to offer that maybe is not going to be received quite like it would be any other time than this. It's why Jesus said, in everything that you do, do for others what you would have them do for you. I know that's a common phrase. I know that it's motivated, however, in you by an uncommon expression of God's love in you. Let it flow so that what is uncommon becomes common. 
Lord, we want to end by asking you, please, uh, to take this message and to let it be more than just something that we've heard, something more than that even for me I, that I've spoken. Uh, let us this week find someone that we can ask the question, what can I do for you?